The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. We are excited about um, ending our 40 days of fasting, and uh, we're going to end it on Super Bowl Sunday. We have a special service planned that day in the morning. We won't meet here. We'll be meeting off-site. You'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. Um, but we'll have a brunch. Chris Cakes is coming. Amen? Amen. And we'll all be together, I think, over here at this park. Iron, what's it called? Yeah, that one. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm not, I don't know all the details. I just know we're doing it that day. So make plans, kind of write that down and pay attention to that because we will just do one service that day, sort of break our, our, our church-wide fast and come together and celebrate and just be excited about having everyone together in one location at that point in time. Um, imagine uh, how life would be. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I have certainly, if you were crippled. You couldn't walk, and you couldn't do, like, just think of all the things that you could not do. I can't imagine how challenging it must be for a person in this life um, who is paralyzed, has to go through, you know, nothing in our world. Of, of course, we, we, we have um, laws that are passed now to try to assist people with this, but still, it must be so difficult to watch people doing so many things that, that I love to do that I could not do. Um, whether it's being active in sports or going hunting or just hanging out and running around with the kids, whatever, man. Everything would be impacted if you were unable uh, to um, walk. And we know there's a story in the gospel of a, uh, all the gospels of a crippled person who was healed. It's a pretty fascinating story, and you can just imagine the transformation that happened in that guy's life. And so his friends bring him before Jesus. They hear that Jesus has the ability to heal people, and he's been doing that. And so they, they find a way to get their, friends, uh, their friend before Jesus. And just to really give you a short um, version of the story, they get him there. And there's some religious leaders and teachers uh, in the Jewish community who are there who witness this miracle. And before Jesus heals the guy, as he's there, he says to him, um, friend, your sins be forgiven, are forgiven. And man, the religious leaders, they hear that and they're like, who does this guy think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus responds to them and he says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to be healed, rise and walk? And then he says, take up your mat and go home. And the guy is healed instantly. And the point Jesus was make, making is that both of those things are impossible unless you're God. You can't forgive sins unless you're God, and you can't heal a paralyzed person unless you're God. There is some supernatural um, ability to do both of those things. And so the question is, uh, two questions for me about that particular story. One is, does Jesus still do this? Does he still heal crippled people? And I think sometimes we look at the Gospels, and they're filled with all of these miracles, which I believe in, and I do believe that God still performs miracles. I think I've seen um, where people have been healed, and there's no explanation for it other than to say it's a miracle that this person made it. But I've never witnessed anything like I read in the Gospels. I've never seen like a person who's paralyzed, been paralyzed since birth, and all of a sudden they're able to walk. I've never witnessed anything like that. 
Um, and I do, I do believe there was a special time going on right there to authenticate um, who Christ was, to demonstrate to the world that he, um, in fact, was the Messiah. But the second question is, why does Jesus couple forgiveness with this healing? <laughs> what, was, he, was the guy like paralyzed because he was a sinner? Um, and so I kind of, that question kind of rolls around in my mind. Well, today we're in um, Romans chapter 12. We'll pick up in verse 9. And um, hopefully, I, I, I think we'll come back and I'll answer that question. But we've been learning that the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters, uh, are just meant about all of this incredible theology about what God has given us. Um, how all people fall short of the glory of God, um, that everyone um, needs to call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. And when we do that, um, we receive the righteousness of Christ because we're believing in his atoning death on the cross of Calvary. And all of this is based on um, grace, like we receive it. Um, we have faith, and, and through grace, we're saved. It's a gift of God that he's just given us and explains where humanity's at apart from him and how delusional um, people become in their thought process as they suppress and hold down the truth. And so we get a good understanding of what's going on in our culture, what has been going on in cultures throughout um, the history of the world, and, and certainly since the time of Christ, and how he has changed everything. And so we look at the first 11 chapters, and we see all that God has given us, and then we get to verse 12, and Paul begins to lay out what we are to give God. And he starts in verse 1 and says, we're to be a living sacrifice. And so our lives are to be a sacrifice that is alive. They, throughout the Old Testament, knew of dead sacrifices. They were going to offer a lamb. It was going to remind them and be a foreshadowing that Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sin of the world. But it was all about dead sacrifices. Now we get to the time of Christ when the Messiah has come, and it's all about living sacrifices. And so it's what we give back to God. And so as we go through um, chapter 12 and following, we're trying to figure out how do we translate all that we've learned in the first 11 chapters, our learning into living, and that's what the uh, final chapters, I think, illustrate. And, and so as we pick up in verse 9, this is pretty obvious stuff here, okay? You read it, it is what it is, right? I, it's not a whole lot of, hey, let me really explain this to you. And so there's not a lot of difficulty about how to understand it. But how it is done is essential. And really what is being communicated is essential. Because while there are things that we do, and it is about our behavior, it is how that behavior begins to happen that is essential. If we miss the first 11 chapters, and many people in the church do this, and start trying to live chapter 12, we're focusing on a lot of things that we need to do, and what you end up with is a bunch of hypocritical, legalistic Christians that the world looks at and says, there's something, like something to add up, because it's really unlivable. <laughs> That's where we kind of begin to see is it's unlivable in your own power and strength. And so that's what I want to lay out for you today is I want you to see, and I really think that what Paul is doing here is, is, is really kind of summarizing the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew chapter 5 
that Jesus uh, preaches. But I'm going to take you through verse by verse. I'm going to make a few comments along the way. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories to illustrate this in my life, and then I'm going to give you a big idea, and you can go out of here and eat. Amen? Everybody loved the last part, right? Verse 1. This is what happens when you have been transformed by the power of Christ, the living God of the universe, who died so that you might live. This is what your life looks like. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So right out of the gate, Paul says love must be sincere. Now what that means is not that we don't act like we love people. We actually love people. There is a sincerity to our love that we become people who actually love other people, even people that we don't know. We become a loving individual, and this word sincere is the Greek word anapokritos, and it means without hypocrisy. So meaning that when I say that I love you, I really do love you. I'm not just saying something to make you feel good that is not true. When I look at you, I really genuinely love you. I love people. I love people and all people, even the people that do perverse and things Uh, wicked things. There's something about me that loves them, that is sincere. Now, I don't love what they do. I don't love any of the behavior that they're engaged in, but I can have compassion and a love for people because something has so penetrated my heart that it has shifted the way that I behave, where formerly I may not have sincere love for all people, but all of a sudden now I do have sincere love for all people without hypocrisy. Now, what what is that? um, How do I go about achieving that kind of love? Well, it is when I realize and believe that Jesus loves me in spite of me. When I begin to dwell on the fact that in spite of my sinful being and my sinful self, Christ loves me. And I dwell on that, and I believe that, and I think on those things, all those things that are taught in the first 11 chapters of Romans, and I begin to meditate on that. I'm overwhelmed by a love that I do not deserve, and I recognize what grace is. It is the unmerited favor of God. He is giving me something that I do not deserve, and by not allowing me to experience his wrath, he is withholding something from me that I do deserve. And the more that I think about that, the more that I recognize I want to be like that because I've received that. I, I want to be loving toward other people. And that's what I think Paul is saying is that when you believe these things and you recognize these things, then all of a sudden, deep within inside of you is a reservoir of life that is springing up from within. And it is like Christ. It is the love of God that is coming out of you. So it's not a doing, it is a being. It is something that has transformed who you are, even down to the core of your spiritual DNA. And evidence of that love is that you start to hate what is evil. You say, oh yeah, I hate what is evil. (laughs) But I think that we have to be clear, you especially hate your own evil first. 
You recognize the evil in your own life. You recognize where you're prone to sin. You recognize where you may not be loving towards another person. And as you meditate on the love that God has given you and you recognize, why am I not reciprocating and, and giving this love and sharing this love with others? Because what, look at what God has done for me and I don't deserve it. And, 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 and he's withholding his wrath from me. And so I want, to, I want to be that kind of a person. And the more that I believe, the more that I meditate, the more that I dwell on that, the more sincere my love will be. And that's what happens in transformation. The evidence is that you hate what is evil, especially your own, and you cling, the word kaleo, which means glued, you stick to what is good. And faith walks in that love. Faith walks in that love at church. Faith walks in that love at work. Faith walks in that love at ball games. Faith walks in that love everywhere. That's what it means to have sincere love is that, man, there's something coming out of me that regardless of who the people are or what they're doing, there's something loving about me. And it is that I understand, I believe, I recognize, and I'm aware of the love that God has for me. And it creates a desire in me to share that love. He goes on in verse 10. It says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, devoted to each other um, in that Greek phrase, it means reciprocal tenderness by giving honor to each other. Okay? And, and the word honor here is, uh, um, uh, the Greek in this text is proegomai. All right, And it means to go before and show the way as a leader of this honor. Okay, so I, I don't honor people that honor me. I just honor. Now, I, I'm reminded because of this word proegomai. It reminds me of, uh, uh, first of all, I see the word ego in that. And it reminds me that we have a problem with this even down to our frozen breakfasts. Lego my ego, right? When this would say, would you like this ego? I see you are in a rush. Now this is convicting, isn't it, Caitlin? I think we had an ego experience a while back, just a few weeks ago. I remember toasting some ego waffles. But, but we see that in our homes, this is challenging when we look at the people that we live with because they must love us. They're not going to abandon us, right? We're, we're with these people. This can be really difficult to live out. And so we can begin to see whether or not we are practicing this devotion to one another, but we are to be leading out in this, okay? We're to lead out. It doesn't mean that we get it perfectly, but it does mean that we recognize, geez, I'm not doing this at all. And it's not okay for me just to say, well, I don't have to honor other people above myself. This clearly says that when my love is sincere and I've been transformed and impacted by the, 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 the Christ of the universe, then all of a sudden I should look like a person who is devoted to other people and I honor them above myself. That's the call. And not only am I to do that, verse 11 says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking is um, a good way to understand that is <laughs> never be lagging behind in zeal. What is zeal? It comes from the Greek word zeal. It means boiling hot. Never be lagging behind and being able to boil hot 
spiritually. This is the fire of the Lord. Every time you find the Holy Spirit, you will find fire. At the day of Pentecost, when the, when the Spirit of God, he, God's presence used to be um, on the earth. It would be in the temple, in the Ark of the Covenant. And sometimes he would come over people for special purposes, like David or Moses. And the Spirit of God would come over them and, and rest on them for special purposes. But the Spirit of God did not dwell and live in every person. That's why the day of Pentecost is so important in the book of Acts, because Jesus said, when I go away, it's, it's better, it's expedient. It's a, I must go away. When I go away, I will send the comforter to you. When he comes, he will begin to work inside of you. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And so here, the disciples that are there um, in, in the early church, in her, her infancy, they're in hiding, they're praying, and, and they're seeking God. They're waiting on Jesus because that's what he told them to do. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God descends on the day of Pentecost upon these, these people in this room, and they come out into the streets, and they preach in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, and people start calling upon the name of the Lord, and they are saved, just like Romans says they will be. And when they are saved, the Spirit of God moves into them, just like Romans says it will happen. And so they are dwelt with the Spirit of God. And when that happens, you are lit on fire by the Holy Spirit, and our hearts are ablaze, and we are never to be lagging behind in that. Well, I just need revival. Why? This says you're never to be lagging behind in that. Like you are to be on fire for the Lord. And so I'm to be on fire for the Lord. How do I do that? One way that I could do that is constantly think about how much God loves me, even though that I don't deserve his love. And then therefore, my love will start becoming sincere. And as I sincerely love other people that don't even deserve my love, that sometimes deserve my wrath, I withhold it like God gives me mercy and withholds wrath. And then I start to honor them above myself and put them before me. And I'm leading out in that all of a sudden, the fire of the Lord just keeps on burning in me. Why? Because I'm believing what I'm supposed to be believing. And because I'm believing what I'm supposed to be believing, my body starts to do what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I was a call to not be lagging behind in my spiritual fervor and my zeal for the Lord. And not only that, he says in verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. What does this tell us? Well, it doesn't tell us that everything is going to be your best life now, right? That's not what this teaches. Like if you believe in a faith where you're never going to have any trouble and you're never going to face any hardship, if you're believing that that's what it means to be a Christian, you are seriously mistaken. Like everyone who wrote the Bible, like with the exception of John, they were all killed early. Many of them had their heads cut off. And John lived, but tradition tells us he was boiled in oil. <laughs> You're going to live your best life now, John. Right? That's not what the Scripture teaches. Now, I do believe that we can go through anything and that God will help us, but we don't look to Christianity and go that everything is going to be trouble-free for me when I turn my life over to Christ. There will be some things that get much more complicated for you because there is a world out there that does not believe in Christ, that does not believe in God, is not alive spiritually. They are dead spiritually, and they are not going to live like you do. And that's going to cause trouble for you, especially if you're not lacking in spiritual fervor 
and you have the fire of the Lord. But he says, be joyful in hope. What does that tell us? It tells us that we hope in the Lord with a good spirit, even when we're going through difficult times, whether it be with our health, whether it be with the uncertainty of our career, whether it be our concern of our children, we always are able to rejoice and have hope because we know we belong to the Lord. And if he is for us, who can be against us? Remember when we learned that in the first 11 chapters? He's saying, this is how it plays out. We're able to be joyful and hope. And we always have hope, even though sometimes things feel uncertain. I can rejoice in hope because I know that I belong to the Lord and nothing, not even death, has a sting for me anymore. Not only that, I'm patient in affliction. I'm patient in affliction. I, like, I hear in that the Lord telling me, I will go through affliction. The Greek word is thalipsis. It means pressure, okay? It means, like, the pressure maybe you would apply, the crushing to a, a grape. Like, it's, it's, it's something that I, I experience as a believer, and when I walk through it, I'm patient. Not only am I patient in the midst of it, I'm not always going around complaining about it. I'm going around rejoicing in hope because I believe in the Lord. And even though in the midst of this pressure that I'm facing, I have the ability to rejoice in those moments. Okay? It's like I'm walking through this. And then he says, be faithful in prayer. And so I think that that is taking my affliction that I'm walking through and I'm able to rejoice in hope because I'm always talking to the Lord about it. So my anxiety is not boiling up and getting out of control. My spiritual fervor is and my anxiety is going down. That's why sometimes when I can't sleep, I get up and go to the living room and I get down on my face on the couch and I say, Lord, I don't know why I'm worried about this because I belong to you. And then I get back up after I lay it down there and I go back and I go to sleep. Because he promises me I can have sleep. And I believe that. And it begins to impact me. And it lowers my anxiety. And my spiritual fervor is raised as I'm constantly trying to have this faithfulness in prayer, which basically means I nonstop have a conversation with Jesus. Now, I go into my prayer closet and I pray like, I pray like a specific focused prayer that I would say is a time of of intercession, and I'm praying for many of you on, on a daily basis. I work through the people who attend here, and that would be a reason for you to fill out a connection card. I don't feel responsible to pray for you if I don't know your name, <laughs> all right? And so, and so I, I do that, but, but I'm, like, I feel like I'm in a spirit of prayer right now. I feel like I'm in a spirit of prayer when I'm out interacting with people. I'm always just talking to the Lord. Like in, in my mind, I'm thinking about the Lord. And that's what it means, I think, to be faithful in prayer in the midst of all of these things. And then he says in verse 11, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. What does this mean? I believe it means that we are to share with spiritual family as needs arise. What are we to share? I think we're to share cash. <laughs> so we say, come on, <laughs> right? But what if you don't have cash? Well, share counsel, share knowledge, share wisdom, share all things. When do I share them? As you're the Holy Spirit who is living inside of you that is giving you a fervor that is not lacking behind and you're rejoicing in hope and you're um, faithful in prayer, he will show you who to share with. 
Some people may have enough cash that they see another brother or sister in the Lord. They're having problems with their car and they're, they don't have cash. And so maybe they say, hey, I want you to take your car in. I'm going to pay the bill. Another guy may not have cash, but he has tools. He says, hey, I noticed that you're having problems with your car. Here's, here's some tools. Take my tools. But then he may also recognize there's no way that guy can use these tools. I have the talent, so I will take my tools and my talent and help that guy on his car because he doesn't have the cash to pay for it. So all kinds of things we could share. And we are to share. So when do we share? We share as we see a need arise that the Holy Spirit is calling us to share with. But we also practice hospitality. And this is the word where we're entertaining strangers. So sometimes there may be even people in the kingdom that we don't even know very well that we share with. Now, this is really common in this day and age because they didn't have Motel 6s and Holiday Inns and all these places when they would come into town and, and Christians were having a hard time finding places to stay. They would just take them in and say, I don't know. You know, John said this guy was good. I guess he's good. I hope he's not an ax murderer. Come on in, bro. Right? And we, we, our culture has told us to not be hospitable, but the word says that we will be hospitable. We, and we will, we will entertain folks and welcome them in. That's the kind of people we become. It gets stronger. Hold on. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Not only are we to bless people who persecute us, we are to not curse them. What is a curse? That is, when we would wish evil to befall them. Wishing for someone, oh, that guy, that guy. He's going to get his one of these days. That's not a believer. A believer doesn't think like that. The person who's been transformed by the power of Christ doesn't wish that on someone else. How do you not do that? You start to go, man, what if the Lord treated me like that? What if the Lord looked at me and all of the sins that I have committed and said, one day he's going to get his. The more I dwell on that, the more I go, wow, the Lord is good to me. Examples of this, Jesus is on the cross. They've crucified him. They've beat him beyond recognition. They're gambling for his clothes. And what does he say, Father? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen is the first martyr in the New Testament. For believing in Jesus He's teaching about Jesus. He's teaching some of the religious leaders. He tells them that they are responsible for killing the Messiah. He calls them out for their sin. He loves them. They take him outside of town and they start throwing rocks at him. And they're hitting him in the head with rocks. And he's able, because he is a man filled with the Spirit, he is not lagging behind in his spiritual fervor. He sees a vision of Christ standing in heaven, and he says, I see Jesus standing in heaven. And they violently gnash their teeth, and they killed this man. And in his last dying words, he says, Lord, don't hold this charge against them. The guy watching the coats wrote this. The guy who said you can kill him because he's violating the Old Testament covenant, Saul, who became Paul, writes the very words that I preach to you about today. Why? 
because he saw sincere love that was jacking with him. He couldn't reconcile it. And ultimately, he finally encountered Christ and he recognized sincere love. And he became that kind of a person who loves himself. Not only are we not to wish evil for people that wrong us, but also it says in the next verse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. I would submit to you it's easier to cry with those who are enduring painful experiences than it is to rejoice sometimes with those who are rejoicing. I said, what do you mean? Well, sometimes we have somebody that maybe at work that gets a promotion and they come and tell us, I got promoted. In the back of your mind, if you're thinking, why did he get promoted? Look at what I do. Like, they didn't even recognize me. Good things always happen to her. Why do they always happen to her? Nothing. That's not what this says. It says rejoice with those who rejoice. When we see someone rejoicing, rejoice with them. When we see someone mourning, mourn with them. The shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. And so as believers, we're able to step into both of those things and genuinely rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. Unless this sound impossible, let me give you another verse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. What does this mean? I think it means to have a realistic awareness of yourself and associate with all kinds of people. Don't be self-absorbed. Don't think that you're too good for anybody. Don't think that you can't take the time to spend with anyone. How does this play out in our lives? I think we look and so if you see yourself always wanting to be with certain people because they are more fun for you and you're like, I don't really want to hang out with that person because I have more fun with this person. Let's go over there and let's make plans before they call us and ask us to come there. You see? You see how that works? See, our minds start to get a hold of us and we're not, we, we would think, well, this means that you, you know, you, you, you shouldn't just want to, the rich people shouldn't want to ha- not hang out with poor people. Well, it means that, but it also means that whether you're rich or poor, you, you could have this opinion, you could have nothing and still want to spend all your time with this group of people and none of your time with that group of people because you enjoy this group and you never offer up yourself with that group. What if Jesus only spent time with people that were really good at stuff. Would he ever come hang out with you? Because as I look at the failure in my life, I would say he could find a lot better people to hang out with than me. But yet daily, he chooses to leave his glory and accompany me on my journey through life and be a part of my life. And he's saying, but when you recognize that, you will recognize that you will go anywhere and it doesn't matter where you go because you will enjoy yourself over there and you will enjoy yourself over there because your hope is in me and you rejoice in that hope and you go along through the uh, faithfulness of prayer and rejoicing and hope and your patient and affliction and you know that with sincere love the gospel moves and you just might see me move in a way that you weren't expecting that just might ignite your spiritual fervor and you won't be lagging behind. Sometimes we don't, we, don't need to, we don't need to keep doing more things. It's not another Bible study that makes you hot for Jesus. It's doing what you learned in the study already. 
It's just being who you are. It's just walking in the freedom of Christ, listening to the Holy Spirit. We turn the corner, lest we might have misunderstood or misinterpreted all that Paul has shared with us up to this point. He wants to be very clear, and he says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Don't look to get square. (laughs) Oh, man. Don't look to get even with people who harm you. Do right to everyone, not just people you worship with, people inside the church and people outside of the church. I would say it's even we need to be more sensitive to being doing right to the unbeliever, lest he have a reason for rejecting Christ and it be the way that we be are behaving. If it is possible, the next verse says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, I appreciate this because sometimes it's not possible to be at peace with a person because they do not want peace. But let's be honest, more times than not, the possibility depends on us. Do we want to be at peace with a person? And even if they're not willing to be at peace with us, we still need to be at peace about the situation and not holding grudges. To walk in faith is to live at peace with everyone, and that is freedom. That is freedom. I don't, I don't have any ill will toward anybody right now. And I try to live that way. Uh, and when I recognize that I do have some ill will, it's usually when I get in the mow zone and I'm, 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 I hear the hum of the mower and I'm walking behind that thing and I keep recurring over this thought, over this person, and I'm having conversations with myself and I know that reconciliation needs to take place because I'm not at peace with that person. And I I want to be at peace with him. Why do I want to be at peace with him? Because I love my spiritual fervor to boil hot through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. This is, we close with these last few verses. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It takes faith to not seek revenge and let the Lord handle your wrongs. That's scary. This is a dog-eat-dog world. I can't just let people, and people will run over me if I do that. You see, there's no faith in that because this specifically says don't take revenge on someone who's done harm to you. Leave room for God. Let God handle this. Now, some would go, well, what about, like, does this mean it's wrong for us to fight and be in a war? We're talking about individual responsibility. Next week, we will talk about the ministry of government. And, and government is, is, is given to, by God to execute justice. But right now, we're talking about individuals, how we function in the body of Christ, both with believers and unbelievers. And the call is to be this. And it's, it's challenging. We're called to do good to our enemies. 
And what I would say with you is whenever he says we do this, it's like heaping hot coals on their head, right? And, and so this was a tradition that, 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 that sometimes they would, uh, when they did something shameful, a person would carry around this large thing of hot coals and, and people would know they did something shameful. And obviously it was a very uncomfortable thing to do. But Paul says that when we love our enemies, it's like we're putting them in that position, will not work without love. If your coals are going to be hot, they must be lit with the loving fire of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you're just manipulating. You go, oh, this person, uh, they did me wrong. I'm going to make them a pie and show them. That doesn't work, right? <laughs> it's not there. It's like you, uh, they're genuinely, you have to love them and, and want to do something kind for them. How does one go about doing that? This is what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, to illustrate this life, I'm going to share two personal stories with you from my past. One I am not proud of at all, okay? So this is not a glory days um, story. Because I think you, we, we, we read this and, and we go, that just doesn't seem livable. In, in this world, like, you don't understand, Jimmy, if I try to live like that, like, well, here's a, a couple of stories for you. Back when I was in my teenage years, late teenage years, I was in a very severe place of rebellion. I was not surrendered to the Lord at all. I was not listening to the Lord. I do think I met the Lord at the age of nine, but I rebelled from everything that I believed. And so I was not walking in belief. I was walking in unbelief with my behavior. And I loaned my truck to my buddy who needed to take his girlfriend home. And so he took his girlfriend home. I don't remember where we were at or anything, but he borrowed my truck to take her home. It just so happens there was another guy that was interested in this girl that he was dating. And he saw my buddy take this person home. And I came out ready to go home later that evening, and all of my tires were flat. Just a knife jabbed in every one of them. And so I figured out who it was through some investigation on my part and asking around and kind of figuring it out. You know how young people are. I figured out who it was that sliced my tires. And at this particular time in my life, I had a lot to prove, and I was running around with a guy by the name of Butch Brown. And you run around with a guy by the name of Butch Brown, you got to deliver, man. <laughs> and this guy was a bad dude, right? Like, uh, he had a reputation, and he was, he could, like, he was a bad dude. He could fight. Why am I telling this? This is embarrassing, kind of funny, but kind of embarrassing, too. So I was... Like, I, like, this guy cut all my tires. I don't have a lot of money. He should pay for those tires. He's the one that did it. And so me and Butch went over to his house, and I went straight up to the door with my truck that I worked in a tire shop at that time, and I got the tires to hold air, right? I patched the sidewalls, got them to hold air, and, and I drove that truck over there, and I went up to the door, and I knocked on the door, and I said, is Robbie here? And his sister hollered back, Robbie, and she came to the door, and he knew me, and I said, hey, I said, you recognize that truck out there? I said, that, 
you got the wrong truck, bro. I said, I want you to come out here and take these look at these tires. I was trying to get him to come out into the street because I was either going to whoop him right there in that moment or he was going to pay me for my tires. Well, his grandma or his mom or somebody called the police on, on us, and the police showed up, and thank the Lord, my mom and dad went to church with this particular policeman in this little city we lived in. And he told me, man, you can't be doing that kind of stuff. Like, you can't come over. And I left, and just so happens, like a week or so later, one Friday evening, I ran into this guy, and I confronted him again with a bunch of people. And I said, you will pay me right now for my tires, or I'm going to whoop you. And he got his stereo out of his car, and he gave it to me, and I got reimbursement. Didn't really take care of what I lost, but at least I felt good about myself. Now, why don't I tell you that story? Because I want you to understand how far away I was from this text. Little did I know that within two years, I would have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And the Lord would get a hold of me in ways that I didn't know him. And I surrendered to the Lord in that moment and I started consuming the New Testament. And I read through the New Testament about five times in a month, and I was blown away. That led to me surrendering to the call to preach, um, led to this particular policeman that I referred to, heard me preach my first sermon, um, ended up going to Bible college, meeting Abby a couple of years later, um, marrying her, and we started in our first ministry position as a youth pastor and wasn't making very much money. She was still in college and got to her final year where she needed to do her student teaching. She made about $250 a month or something like that working at the school, which we depended on just to be able to make our bills and take care of things. Again, we were, this is early on in life for us. And so in order to replace that income that was going to go away while she was student teaching, I got hooked up with um, a a business that I could start doing promotional products, selling T-shirts, doing embroidery, and and, uh, I would buy the shirts wholesale. I would use a printer and embroiderer that gave me contract pricing. And and so I was kind of the middleman, and it helped me to replace that income. And so that's the way we were living at this particular time. And my cousin, whom I had a great relationship with during this time of my life, um, used to spend a lot of time with, with her. Well, she was dating a guy who owned a heat, or a, a, a heat and air company. And she told him that I did this on the side and I was getting into it. And so he placed an order with me. And he ordered about $600 worth of shirts, which was a, was a lot of money back then, uh, especially for us. It was a lot of money. And so... Um, you know, I'm excited. This is going to help. We're going to make a little bit off of this, get a couple more orders. That month is taken care of. Well, in the meantime, one of my buddies, while my cousin was over at my house, one of my buddies dropped in, and um, he's a real fun dude and everything, and, and we, I don't know what we were doing, but that turned into they, they went out on a date. Well, then I got the guy's shirts done. So this was a different friend that she went out with. So I got the guy's shirts done. And I called him. I said, hey, man, I got your shirts ready. And he's like, man, I don't want those shirts. He said, you, you, your cousin is going out with one of your friends, and you don't do business with a person and betray. I said, bro, I don't have anything to do with my cousin's dating life. That's not on me. And he hung up on me. 
So I got on the phone and called Butch Brown. No, that's not what I did. <laughs> that is not what I did. <laughs> so I was thinking to myself, I can't believe this. The guy stiffed me. And so I was like, what am I going to do? And I wanted to go over. I'm like, I'm going over there. To, and I just, and this, this scripture hit me between the eyes, man. How am I going to, like this says to love him. I didn't want to love that guy, but then I got to thinking about it. I thought, I thought about my story. Look at what I did to this guy just a couple of years ago and how far away I was from the Lord. And the Lord still loved me in spite of that. And he's using me in ministry, even though I was that far away from him. And man, the Lord got a hold of me and I started to recognize this guy doesn't know the Lord like that. That's why he's behaving that way. He doesn't know the freedom that I know. And all of a sudden, something started welling up in my heart where I had a genuine care for this guy. It was no longer about the $600. It was more about this guy's soul. And the Lord just led me to write a letter, and I sat down, and I write, wrote a letter just describing how the Lord had moved in my life and how he had forgiven me, and it was completely free. It was just his grace. And I told him, I said, I want you to have these shirts. I can't use them anyways. And you take them and don't worry about it. They're free, just like the grace of God that has touched my life. And I don't ever want you to worry about it again. And I sent him the shirts and the letter. And a week later, I got a check in the mail for $800. He paid me $200 too much. And so I was like, well, is this a bless or a test? <laughs> and so I was like, well... I, this guy's got to know I am for real. And so I sent him back the $200, but not until after his check cleared the bank. Right? <laughs> and that, that, what I want you to hear in that is the second, the first story, I was overcome by evil. In the second story, I overcame evil with good. Like, I hate the first story. I don't know what that guy's doing with his life right now. I don't know. Like, I did nothing good for the kingdom in the first story. And I love the second story because I know that I didn't do the second story. I know it's not what I wanted to do. I know that I died to myself, and I know that it was all about faith. The whole moment was about faith. And the Lord stretched me in that moment. And I'm thankful for the, that I shared the gospel with that guy. I, and I did it with sincerity and love. And it was all rooted in faith. And so what it happened for me in that moment is I was being what I was instead of trying to do something to earn God's approval. I just recognized what I was and said, this is what the Lord says to do, so this is what I will do, and I will seek him in it, and he will lead me in it. Now, here's the big idea, and you don't miss this point. It's the main point. You can't walk this out if you are crippled. If you try to do this in your own power, you will break your spiritual neck. It's not possible. This is not a call to do. This is a call to be. And crippled people can't walk by faith because they are paralyzed. Okay, so like you hear a sermon like this, you go, well, I got to go do this. I got to do that. No, friend, you need a healing before you can ever walk. 
And I believe this is why Jesus forgave the man's sins before he told him to take up your mat and walk. Don't try to take up your mat and walk if you're still carrying your sin around. You can't do it. And so maybe you're where I was in that moment where when I was returning evil for evil, I knew the Lord, but I just wasn't surrendered to him. I, I had gone my own way and rebelled from him, and I was living outside of the covenant promises, and he called me back home, and I repented, recommitted my life to the Lord, and I haven't looked back. Maybe, maybe you've never, never been healed spiritually. Maybe the Lord has never touched your life to where you know what it feels like to walk spiritually. Now go back to this. Could you imagine a crippled person who could be healed and could run around and chase his kids and go to work and play softball and just have a normal life? Could you imagine him going, no, I don't want that. But jump at it. There are a lot of crippled people in the world, and you may be one of them. And I'm just describing, what I'm describing to you, man, is that when, you, when the Lord forgives you, and he says, man, I'm going to do away with your sin. I'm going to change you into something else. It's an invitation to get up and walk and not be paralyzed anymore. And I, man, I, I don't get this perfect, but I understand it's who I am. And when I recognize that I've stumbled, I just repent. And what I do understand about all of it is that I'm free. <laughs> I'm free. He set me free, and I, I'm running the race within. And I just couldn't imagine getting back in that chair, laying on that mat, and living the way I was before. And so if that's you, I'm going to leave you, this, leave you with this question. What the heck are you doing there? Why would you lay on that mat when Jesus has said, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love, your grace that you still heal the cripples. I'm thankful, Lord, that I'm no longer crippled. And I rejoice in what you have done in my life. And I pray that you would continue to help me to learn more and more about who you are so that I can walk with greater freedom. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.